Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, March 12, 2021. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening, we will present part 24 of our commentary on the wisdom of Solomon, and this is subtitled, The Root of All Evil. As we have noted in the first portion of our commentary on Wisdom, chapter 15, two weeks ago, when Solomon began his discourse on the subject of idolatry, he used the example of a woodworker who in his spare time had made an idol from leftover and otherwise useless wood. And the result of his leisure was that he began to worship the works of his own hands. Now, where we had left off, in this chapter. Solomon had made a similar analogy of a potter who purposely and deceitfully crafted and painted images of false gods for men to worship. As a result, men who worship the gods which are made in their own image or in the images of other men are led astray into all sorts of other sins which are much more grievous and ultimately they are led to their own destruction. So we had also noted that the will to commit idolatry is rooted in pride and arrogance, even when the motive is profit, but that true humility is a willingness to be obedient to God. So even before we began our commentary on chapter 15 of Wisdom, we had concluded that forsaking Yahweh, we cannot help but sin, and we sin arrogantly as we have purposely forsaken God. But now as we proceed with Wisdom chapter 15, we may see that even Solomon understood the Christian concept of humility, which the apostles had also taught, which is to acknowledge one's sin and seek forgiveness without imagining that one may escape the judgments of God. So now we shall take a short digression. As we ask ourselves a question, what was the humility of the apostles which Solomon also understood? To answer that, we must understand the concept of patriarchy in antiquity. Since we have not lived under such a construct, for many centuries. It is through the same concept of patriarchy that even God asserts his rights over his children. While as a nation, the children of Israel collectively were considered the wife or bride of Yahweh, individually they are each his children and therefore they are subject to him as their patriarch. One place in Scripture that we see this is in Deuteronomy chapter 14. Ye are the children of Yahweh your God. Ye shall not cut yourselves nor make any baldness between your eyes or actually on the top of your head for the dead. For thou art a holy people unto Yahweh thy God. And Yahweh has chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. Thou shalt not eat any abominable thing. Of course, for that same reason, 
they were also commanded to keep many other laws. But the children of Israel were not chosen to be children of God. As Luke attests in his gospel, Adam was the son of God, and therefore all of his legitimate descendants would also be children of God. Paul attested that same thing to the Jepethite Athenians in Acts chapter 17. Rather, the children of Israel were chosen to be recognized as the children of God. As in ancient times, a father had a right to choose which of his offspring would be recognized as sons and even which of them would live. So Abraham had a right to, to sacrifice Isaac as Yahweh so demanded. And Isaac had a right to pass the blessings of Abraham onto Jacob as an inheritance for reason that Esau was a fornicator. So Jacob was chosen out of all of the Adamic families of the earth so that his children alone would be given the position of sons, the Greek word huiothesia, unfortunately translated as adoption in most versions of the New Testament. So we read in Isaiah chapter 41, But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. Then again in chapter 44, Thus saith Yahweh that made thee and formed thee from the womb, asserting his fatherhood, which will help thee. Fear not, Jacob, my servant, and thou, Jesse, run, whom I have chosen. Another place where it is evident that the children of Israel are the children of God is in Jeremiah chapter 31, where it also speaks in regard to the children of Israel long after they had been taken into captivity. For thus saith Yahweh, Sing with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the chief of the nations. Publish ye, praise ye, and say, O Yahweh, save thy people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country, and gather them from the coasts of the earth, and with them the blind and the lame, and the woman with child, and her that travails with child together. A great company shall return hither. They shall come with weeping, and with supplications will I lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way, wherein they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of Yahweh, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off. And say, he that, gathered, he that scattered Israel will gather him, and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. The power of a father over his children is often evident in the Bible, and it is certainly practiced by God himself. But even there, in reference to earthly fathers, it is not described quite as explicitly as it is later evidenced in ancient Roman law. So the following is from an Encyclopedia Britannica article 
on the subject of patria potestas, which is the Roman law preserving the rights of a father or grandfather over all of his descendants. Patria potestas, in Latin, power of a father. In Roman family law, power that the male head of a household, of a family, exercised over his children and his more remote descendants in the male line. Whatever their age, it doesn't matter. As well as over those brought into the family by adoption. This power meant originally not only that he had control over the persons of his children, amounting even to a right to inflict capital punishment, but that he alone had any rights in private law. Thus, acquisitions of a child became property of the father. The father might allow a child, as he might a slave, certain property to treat as his own, but in the eye of the law, it continued to belong to the father. So nothing we have is ours. It all belongs to our father. Patria Potestas, continuing with one more short paragraph from the article, Patria Potestas ceased normally only with the death of the father. But the father might voluntarily free the child by emancipation, and the daughter ceased to be under the father's potestas, under the father's power, if upon her marriage she came under her husband's manus, a corresponding power of husband over wife. And even then, she was under the power of her husband's father, if he still lived. <coughs> Excuse me. There are other and more extensive articles available freely on these Roman patriarchal laws, such as an article which I will link to this podcast, but I won't quote from here, an article by George Long on Patria Potestas from William Smith's 1875 Dictionary of Greek and Roman Activities, I'm sorry, Antiquities. It's available at the Lacus Curtius website maintained by the University of Chicago. Another article on the subject, which is hostile to the biblical concept of patriarchy, but which nevertheless describes the Roman law accurately, says in part, the patricians who ruled Rome were named after their male supremacist culture. Of course, this must be a feminist-leaning article. The elite landholding class built Roman law on the base of patria potestas, the life and death power of the father over his wife, children, and slaves. This privilege was enshrined in the Twelve Tables of the Law, not to be rescinded until the 2nd century CE, which is AD, the 2nd century following Christ, the birth of Christ. As the historian Livy had explained in Book 3 of his History of Rome, describing the events of the 5th century before Christ, in the formation of the Roman of the Republic of the Romans, 
the Romans had used laws, the laws of Ceylon and the Athenians, as well as other Greek states, as a model for their 12 tables, which were originally only 10. The right of patria potestas only belonged to the eldest male ancestor, regardless of the age of his sons. A son could only acquire this right if his parents had first been lawfully married according to the Roman law of Canubium, because Romans weren't allowed to just marry anybody, and then only once his own male ancestors had all died. So the right of the patria potestas belonged only to the patriarch of the family. He was the pater familias, the head of the entire family or clan. He held ownership rights to all of the family's property, and he alone had any rights in private contract law. There are records from Roman antiquity showing that the right of a father to have his own children executed, sons for rebellion or treachery, and daughters for adultery, certainly were asserted. When a son married, the rights of his own father, or his grandfather, if he still lived, were extended to his daughter-in-law, who through marriage was free from the rights of her own father and became the property of the patriarch of her husband's family. In ancient Rome, there were similar laws governing the rights of a man over his wife and also his slaves, if he had any. The patria potestas became diluted, and certain powers assumed by the state by the time of the classical period, and especially in the time of the empire, although many aspects of it remained in Byzantine law even in the time of Justinian, and that is also an observable pattern in history, where today the rights which a man formerly had over his own household and marriage now also belong to the state rather than to the man. There's nothing new under the sun. But understanding this ancient Roman law and the fact that Roman law itself had originated in the older societies of the East, we can better understand many aspects of scripture. Historians today claim that patria potestas was unique to Rome, but that is not true as many elements of it are found throughout Scripture. For example, there is the authority of Abraham to place his adult son Isaac on the altar in order to sacrifice him to God. So Abraham had the power of life and death over Isaac. And Isaac complied, accepting his father's authority. There was also the authority which Judah had exercised over his daughter-in-law, Tamar, even though her husband, Judah's son, was dead, and how he asserted the right to bring her to trial for adultery where he himself sat as her judge. We also see later in scripture 
in Numbers chapter 30 that a wife or daughter is not even allowed to make an agreement or contract, which is a form of oath, without the approval of her father or husband, as he had the right to invalidate her oath. In relation to the patriarchy, Roman law was not much different than the laws of God. Like Roman law, the laws of Yahweh also insist that sons obey their parents, or especially their fathers, or that they may be liable even to death, as we see in Deuteronomy chapter 21. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son, which will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and that when they have chastened him, will not hearken unto them. Then shall his father and his mother lay hold on him, and bring him out unto the elders of his city, and unto the gate of his place. And they shall say unto the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard, or whatever other sound reason they may have had. And all the men of his city shall stone him with stones, that he die. So shall thou put away evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. So once we understand that these circumstances reflected the culture of the time, and the environment in which children were raised where children had no alternative but to be obedient to the family patriarch, and especially to their own father. Perhaps we may better understand the example of Christian humility taught by Christ to his apostles. This example is found in Matthew chapter 18, where immediately after Christ had told Peter how he should pay a tax so that they did not offend the Romans, we then read, at the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, of course this is the King James Version, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, except you be converted, and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive, whoso shall receive one such child in my name receives me. In the opening chapter of the Epistle of James, we see a further exhibition of such humility as it should apply to adults, where we read, Now if one of you wants wisdom, he must ask from Yahweh, who gives to all sincerely and without reproaching, and it shall be given to him. But he must ask with faith, doubting nothing. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea being driven about and blown about by the wind. For that man must not suppose that he shall receive anything from the prince or lord. Now I'm quoting from the Christoginian New Testament for some reason. 
A double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. A little child is obedient, blindly obedient to his father, learns from his father, and adores his father. A little child had no, had no other choice but to be devoted to his father. And that devotion was expected so long as the father lived. If a man, being a father, takes himself seriously and answers his child honestly and with integrity, the child will also learn to doubt nothing from his father. A son who asks, but also doubts, is indeed double-minded, because if he would doubt that he should not ask at all. That is how the children of Israel should treat Yahweh their God, their collective father, and their ultimate patriarch, or, as the Romans would say, their pater familius, he who has the power of life and death over them all. However, asking of Yahweh, one must search the scriptures for the answers, not one's feelings, which is another example that Christ himself had left to men. Search the scriptures, not your feelings. For that Paul had commended Timothy, as he wrote in the final verse of his second epistle to Timothy. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learnt and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learnt them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures. So that's how Timothy learned from God, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction as a child, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Rather than living, and by teaching their children from the scriptures, most men today are idolaters. And from the youngest age, they teach their children idolatry. Even if they consider themselves Christians in name, they are idolaters by example. And it's the example that counts. So today, once children come to think of themselves, to think for themselves, once children come to think for themselves and realize that the idols of their fathers are not real, or perhaps they were only men playing games for hire, they no longer believe their fathers, and they seek no longer to learn from them. That is no wonder, as parents, even supposedly Christian parents, begin to teach their children idolatry even before they are weaned. So young children are taught about such fables as the Tooth Fairy, the Easter Bunny, and Santa Claus, 
And when they attain an age where they realize that they have been lied to concerning those things, it is no wonder that they no longer respect their parents, and it is only natural that they would rebel. Then by the time they are adolescents, they are rebellious not only towards their own parents, but often towards all other forms of authority and even against God. Only a fool would teach children to believe in images, which they may see, but which represent things that do not really exist, and still expect those children to believe in a God whose image they cannot actually see, but who does really exist. How could they believe in a God they cannot see if they were lied to about things which they were shown, but which they discovered were not real? So the parents who teach their children such lies ultimately defeat themselves by their own folly. In my own opinion, this form of idolatry is one of the most fundamental problems in our society today as it causes adolescent children to distrust their parents and dispute their authority as soon as they begin to come of age. Where we had left off in Wisdom chapter 15, Solomon was engaged in explaining how the potter had manufactured idols for his own gain and competed in their manufacture with other craftsmen. So doing that, he made his own life to be of no value, having spent it in the promotion of idolatry, where we read, His heart is ashes, his hope is more vile than earth, and his life of less value than clay. For as much as he knew not his maker, and him that inspired him into an active soul, and breathed in a living spirit. Men should adore and obey Yahweh their father, maker and patriarch, like a little child, rather than try to make gods in their own image. Or worship the gods which others had made for their own purposes. These spiritual forces behind the idolatry of modern consumerism are no different than the motives and inspiration of Solomon's potter. As concepts such as Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny are also mere representatives of modern covetousness, materialism, and mercantilism. Therefore, the love of money is the root of all evil, as the modern concept of Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny are the inventions of the merchants who wish to sell products and even idols. So as we commence with this chapter of wisdom, Solomon explains that same thing in his own assessment of the vanity of idolatry. In verse 12, But they counted our life a pastime, and our time here a market for gain. For, they say, we must be getting every way, though it be by evil means. I'm going to actually retranslate quite a bit of the end of this chapter. 
The word for pastime, pahignion, is more literally a plaything or a toy. The word for life in the first clause is zoe. So the translators rendered a near synonym, bios, as time. This is appropriate as Liddell and Scott explain that Zoe describes the life, describes a life, but bios, or actually that should be pronounced bios in Greek, as the course of life, the livelihood, or even the manner or means of living. Both of these words have taken form in modern English, Zoe as zoo and zoology, bios as biology and related words, biometrics, things like that. However, the word panegorismos here, which is translated as market, and our time here a market for gain in the King James and in Britain's Septuagint, that refers to the celebration of a panegyrus, which was generally, which was a general assembly, but also and especially a festal assembly in honor of a national god, according to Liddell and Scott. This word has also come into English as panegyric, which is a public speech made in praise of a person which is also a subtle form of idolatry. Today we call public speeches made in praise of a person by the same word that the ancient Greeks used to describe a festal assembly in honor of a national god. And while Santa Claus is seasonal, he certainly represents an idol as well as a sort of national god, at least here in America, the word epicurdes, which is gain here, is an adjective which describes something that is profitable, especially from usury or through trade. So likewise, the verb porizo, which is getting here, is to furnish, provide, or acquire, usually through trade, among other possibilities. Because of the archaic language of the second half of the verse, we shall offer our own translation. This is Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 15, verse 12. But our life they reckon to be a plaything. Speaking of the merchants who create and promote idols. And our time here, a profitable festival. For it is necessary, they say, to acquire from anything, even if from of evil. As long as they are making money, they don't care. So here we should take a serious note that the idolatry and materialism of the modern world are nothing new. And that behind the idolatry of the ancient world were all the same motives for profit from greed by which we suffer idolatry today. Nothing new under the sun.
Now Solomon describes its authors as the foremost of sinners, once again employing a woodworker as his example. Remember that earlier in wisdom, Solomon had said that the making of idols was the beginning of all sin. For this man, in verse 13, for this man, that of earthly matter, maketh brittle vessels and graven images, knoweth himself to offend above all others. And once again, we would translate this verse to read, more faithfully to its meaning and its original word order. For this man knows that he sins beyond all, fabricating of earthy wood an easily broken and carved vessel. If idolatry is promoted for the sake of profit for craftsmen and merchants, as the record of the silversmiths in Acts chapter 19 also attests, and if it is idolatry that leads to all other much more horrible sins, even things such as adultery, race mixing, and infanticide, as Solomon has explained throughout this discourse on idolatry, that perhaps we see that while idolatry is the vehicle for such profit, it really is the love of money which is the root of all evil. Thus, Paul of Tarsus had written in chapter 6 of his first epistle to Timothy, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things, and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. The Apostle John had ended his first epistle with a simple admonition in 1 John chapter 5. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So as men, we must ask ourselves whether it is worth the actual sacrifice of one's own people in order to live life as a party for one's own profit, even being willing to profit from evil as Solomon has described here in verse 12. But now, consistent with his own historical context, and this is a, another reason why I sincerely believe that Solomon, in spite of all mainstream academia, they can all go to hell. They don't understand any of this. Solomon was the actual author of wisdom, even if it was translated much later, because the entire historical context and understandings of certain things that I know that the mainstream academics don't understand help to establish that this must have been written in the time of Solomon. So now, consistent with his own historical context, 
He ascribes such behavior to the enemies of Israel. He's not really describing these things to the children of Israel. Not yet, anyway. And all the enemies of thy people that hold them in subjection are most foolish and are more miserable than very babes. I will offer my own translation of this passage also, even if it is only for the sake of clarity. But all the most foolish, even suffering beyond the life of an infant, are the enemies of your people who have oppressed them. During the 400 years, the 400-year period, leading up to the time of David and Solomon, it is evident in the book of Judges and until the time of Saul that the children of Israel had, at diverse times, been ruled over and oppressed by the Moabites, Philistines, Amorites, and others. This, in turn, was on account of the sins of the Israelites themselves. And although during the Judges period, the sins of Israel are usually described only in, the, in a general sense, we read in both chapters 17 and 21 of the book of Judges that in those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. However, whenever they had returned to Yahweh their God and repented, he delivered them from their oppression. But they never repented for long. So they became oppressed once again, following this cycle until finally they forsook Yahweh by demanding an earthly king. So under earthly kings, their condition had often been even worse than it was under the Philistines. So, it, so this is the perspective from which Solomon had written here in Wisdom. In a time when the children of Israel had often and recently been ruled over by the surrounding nations, while, as he writes, the kingdom had only recently been assured to David his father, and Solomon himself did not live in fear of being oppressed by those other nations. However, after the time of Solomon, it is apparent that the children of Israel themselves who had adopted the ways of the heathen and had turned back to idolatry and following the gods of the Canaanites, sinned in like manner and began to oppress the poor for themselves. This we read in Amos chapter 2, which was evidently written about 250 years or so after Solomon's time, maybe 260. Thus saith Yahweh, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have despised the law of Yahweh, and have not kept his commandments, and their lies caused them to err, after which their fathers have walked. But I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. Thus saith Yahweh, for three, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they sold the righteous for silver, and the poor for a pair of shoes, that pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor, and turn aside the way of the meek, 
and a man and his father will go in unto the same maid, adultery, to profane my holy name. And they lay themselves down upon clothes laid to pledge by every altar. And they drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. So, at first, when Solomon wrote, it was the other nations oppressing the children of Israel. But 200 years later, it was the Israelites themselves. While it is evident that principal men among the children of Israel were oppressing their own people in those later years of the kingdom, Solomon did warn against such behavior on a more personal level. In Proverbs chapter 22, from verse 16, He that oppresses the poor to increase his riches, and he that gives to the rich, shall surely come to want. Bow down thine ear, and hear the words of the wise, and apply thine heart. Under my knowledge, for it is a pleasant thing if thou keep them within thee. They shall withal be fitted in thy lips. His knowledge, his words. That thy trust may be in Yahweh. I have made known to thee this day, even today, have I not written to thee excellent things in counsels and knowledge, that I might make thee know the certainty of the words of truth, that thou mightest answer the words of truth to them that send unto thee. Rob not the poor, because he is poor. Neither oppress the afflicted in the gate, where trials were heard, and judgments were made by elders, usually by the market gate. For Yahweh will plead their cause, and spoil the soul of those that spoiled them. Perhaps not being able to foresee the degree to which Israel would fall into idolatry after his passing, Solomon continues by speaking of the idolatry of the surrounding nations, who were the enemies of Israel. And as chapter 16 commences, he even contrasts the fate of Israel and their enemies when they are punished. So, verse 15 of Wisdom, chapter 15. For they, the enemies of Israel, are still the subject. For they counted all the idols of the heathen, or properly nations, to be gods, which neither had the use of eyes to see, nor noses to draw breath, nor ears to hear, nor fingers of hands to handle, and as for their feet, they are slow to go. And that last clause may have been rendered more accurately. And as for their feet, they are idle for motion. They don't move. Solomon is only repeating a facet of the vanity of idolatry he mentioned in verse 5 of this chapter, where we read of such idols that the sight whereof entices fools to lust after it. And so they desire the form of a dead image that has no breath. So now, in a statement which implies that man cannot impart breath to inanimate objects, he says of the same idols in verse 16, For man made them, and he that borrowed his own spirit, or breath, fashioned them. But no man can make a god like unto himself. There is no word in the text here for 
his own. And the second clause should read only, and he, borrowing the Spirit, fashioned them. The suggestion, the suggestion seems to be that when a man makes an idol, he seeks to make a god in his own image, but he can't give it life. Solomon continues by speaking of a man. For being mortal, he works a dead thing with wicked hands. For he himself is better than the things which he worships. Whereas he lived once, but they never. In Jeremiah chapter 3, speaking of the sin of Judah, as it was comparable to that of Israel, we read from verse 9, And it came to pass through the likeness of her whoredom, that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and stocks. Stocks, in that context, are idols made of wood. And of course, the idolatry led to a host of other and much more grievous sins, which Solomon has already described here, sins such as adultery and even spousicide. Spousicide. No, I'm not coining that word. It's already been used. It's the murder of one's spouse, or more accurately, uxoricide. Uxor, the Latin word for life. Uxoricide is a real world word, a real word describing one's killing of one's own wife. Through the worship of inanimate objects, man makes himself of less value than the objects. But just as wicked is the worship of lowly beasts. So Solomon continues in verse 18. Yeah, they worship those beasts also that are most hateful. For being compared together, some are worse than others. And while the sense of the translation is acceptable, we would prefer to more accurately render the verse to read, and they worship the most loathsome animals. For being compared in folly, it is the worst of all others. In other words, the folly of worshiping lowly beasts is the worst of all, or is worse than all other follies, which is what is really being said here. As Paul had written in Romans chapter 1, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God unto an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Solomon had also written in this manner near the beginning of his discourse on idolatry in Wisdom chapter 13. But miserable are they, and in dead things is their hope, who call them gods, which are the works of men's hands, gold and silver, to show art in, and resemblances of beasts, or a stone good for nothing, the work of an ancient hand. Here, in relation to beasts, it is fitting that the word chosen 
to express the concept of being worse or inferior is a comparative form of the Greek word chiron. Since chiron, as a proper noun, was indeed the name of one of the mythological Greek centaurs, beasts which were half man and half horse. According to Homer's Iliad, Chiron was the benefactor of the Greek hero Achilles and his father Peleus. If the classical chronologies are credible, as they appear to be, then the time in which the legend is set would predate Solomon by perhaps around 250 years. Perhaps a later translator picked up on the association and purposely used that word because there, other, there are other ways in Greek to say worse or less good. So now Solomon attests further. Neither are they beautiful, so much as to be desired in respect of beasts, but they went without the praise of God and his blessing. And once again, the sense of the translation is fine, but we chose to offer our own as the thought is continued where, from verse 18, where Solomon attested that the worship of beasts is the worst of follies. And now he says, nor is it so much as to be desired that the sight of a beast attains beauty, but escapes even the approval of God and his blessing. And here Solomon is apparently implying that a craftsman can make, can seem to make the lowliest beasts appear beautiful, but in reality those beasts are not beautiful. And being ugly or loathsome, it is evident that such beasts themselves had not been blessed by God. So therefore, they should not be made into objects of desire or worship by men. Now, as Solomon proceeds in Wisdom chapter 16, he turns to describe the historical consequences of the worship of beasts in relation to both the children of Israel and their ancient enemies, of whom he speaks first and he writes, Therefore, the surrounding nations still being the subject, therefore by the like they were punished worthily, and by the multitude of beasts tormented. As Solomon uses lessons from the history of the Exodus throughout the closing chapters of Wisdom, this is a reference to the plagues of ancient Egypt which was punished with plagues of frogs, lice, locusts, caterpillars, and flies, among other things. Now Solomon contrasts this punishment to that of the rebellion of the Israelites while wandering in the desert. Instead of which punishment, instead of the punishment which the Egyptians had suffered, Dealing graciously with thine own people, thou preparest for them meat of a strange taste, even quails, to stir up their appetite. Here I'm going to probably speak it 
too much at length about these quails, but that's okay. This elucidates a problem with scripture. And I will side with the wisdom of Solomon and the Septuagint over the King James Version, because I think something was lost over the space of time. Here the word translated as quails. It's quails here, and it's quails in the Masoretic texts of the Old Testament, <coughs> the, the translations from the Masoretic text. The word translated as quails is a plural form of ortugometra, ortugometra, a compound word formed from the name ortugia, or quail island, as an ortux is a quail, and ortugos is the genitive form. So, ortugometra would mean the mother of quails. So, this word ortugometra is from the word ortux, which is a quail, and the Greek word for mother, which is mater. Where quails are mentioned four times in the Septuagint, referring to the same event to which Solomon refers, in the books of Exodus, Numbers, and Psalms, this same word appears, ortugometra, for the letters S-L-V in the Masoretic text, which is translated as selav in Strong's Hebrew lexicon. In their Greek-English lexicon, Liddell and Scott translate ortugometra as a bird which migrates with the quails, perhaps the land rail. Now, the birds of the rail family are marsh birds. They're generally small marsh birds. There are other types of birds like ibises and herons that are much larger marsh birds. Liddell and Scott also explained that the term was ludicrously applied as an epithet to Latona or Leto. She had two names, don't ask me why. The mythological mother of Apollo and Artemis as the Ortigian mother, citing the 5th century B.C. poet Aristophanes, Ortigian mother, the mother of quails. If the quail itself were meant, it seems unlikely that Solomon would have referred to meat of a strange taste as quail had been a game animal, a game bird in Europe and Africa from the earliest times. The ancient Greeks had specific terms describing a quail hunter, but which was actually an ortugotherus. That was a quail hunter. They knew how to hunt for quails. The ancient Egyptians knew how to hunt for and eat quails. So why would Solomon call this a bird of strange taste? In the Wikipedia article for quail, which cites a bird conservation journal, we read that the common 
quail is heavily hunted as game on passage through the Mediterranean area, even to this day. Very large numbers of caught are caught in nets along the Mediterranean coast of Egypt, just where the children of Israel were before the Exodus. It is estimated that in 2012, during the autumn migration, 3.4 million birds were caught in northern Sinai, and perhaps as many 12.9 million in the whole of Egypt. So quail are evidently a major food supply in Egypt. From what I understand, the birds are also a little slow and lazy, so they're easier to catch. But the corresponding Hebrew term does, does seem to mean quail, at least in modern times. Two birds. The two birds are distinguished. The ortux and the ortugometra are distinguished in Aristotle's History of Animals. And we shall read the corresponding passage from the Loeb Classical Library edition. In part, we're not reading the entire chapter. When quails have landed, now that's the word ortux in the Greek, and yes, I examined the Greek. When quails have landed, if it is good weather on a north wind, they pair off and are quiet. But if it is a south wind, they are in difficulties through not being good flyers, for the wind is wet and heavy. Hence, the hunters try for them during south winds. But in good weather, they avoid flying because of their weight, for their body is bulky. Hence, they scream while flying, for they are suffering. At least that's how Aristotle interpreted the sounds which a, which a quail made in flight. Now, when they make landfall from overseas, they do not have leaders like geese would. But as they set off from this side, the glottis sets off with them. The glottis, which is a, a different type of bird. Together with the quail mother. The quail mother being the word for the bird that we see here in the Wisdom of Solomon. And in the Septuagint translations, where we see that word ortugometra, where the English says that the Israelites ate quail in the desert. It's actually this word ortugometra, not ortux. And ortugometra is distinguished by Aristotle from quail, where he mentions quail and another bird called a quail mother. Because as Aristotle relates here, the quail themselves did not have leaders. But as they set off from this side, the glotus, whatever sort of bird that was, sets off with them together with the quail mother and the eared owl and the kukremos, which actually summons them during the night. And when the hunters have heard its voice, they know the quails are not remaining. The quail mother is like the marsh birds in form. Now, does Aristotle refer to the rails, birds of the rail family, which are small birds like the quail? Or is he referring to the, the ibis and the heron and larger birds like that, which are also marsh birds? We cannot tell. 
his language in the Greek is ambiguous. So he says, the quail mother is like the marsh birds in form. Well, it's definitely different than the quail. And it is quail mother that we see here in the wisdom of Solomon. And it is quail mother that we see in Leviticus and Numbers and in the Psalms, where the King James Version simply has quail. But it should not be quail. It should be quail mother, as Aristotle distinguished the two species as separate species. The quail mother is like the marsh birds in form. And the glotus has a tongue that puts it out, that it puts out a long way. The eared owl resembles the owls and has tufts by the ears, and some call it night raven. So whatever bird the glotus is, it reminds me. And, and right now, I'm sorry, the name has just escaped me. It's on the tip of my tongue, but I ain't got it. But there are little birds we see along the beach here in Florida that run up and down and stick their that their beaks into the holes to suck out crabs and spiders and, and things like that. But now I can't even think about their name. And there's several varieties of them. Well, they're also marsh birds. Here in Aristotle, we see that the ortux is indeed the true quail and that the ortugometra or quail mother, as it was translated here, is some other bird which is more like marsh birds than quail. However, the Greek word for marsh bird used by Aristotle in that passage is ambiguous. But in any event, we must agree with Liddell and, Squat, Liddell and Scott that the ortugometra is not a quail, but some bird somehow associated with quails. For that and other reasons, we would translate verse 2, leaving the word ortugometra untranslated to read, instead of which punishment, working kindly for your people for their longing of appetite, you prepared, or to go metra, meat of a strange taste. Quail were commonly hunted. The Israelites, being along the coast of Egypt, would have naturally eaten quail and probably on a regular basis. But if we had to translate Ortugo Metra, we would have to write quail mother rather than quail, as it, is also, as it also appears in the Loeb Classical Library edition of Aristotle. Now, this seems trite, but it also calls into question whether the Israelites in the desert were actually given quail to eat or if they were being punished with some bird of strange taste, something to which Solomon attests here. And that's what I lean to believe. They were eat, eating something that they didn't normally eat, something that may have been clean but simply wasn't normally eaten. Quail mothers. So the birds tasted strange, as Solomon says here, and he actually says it twice, as we shall see. So it's not a mistake. There were two occasions where the Israelites in the wilderness were fed with quails, or perhaps with these strange quail mothers. And I should be more confident about that. I should say, or rather, with these strange 
quail mothers. The first is recorded in Exodus chapter 16, where we read in part, I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel. Speak unto them, saying, At even, or at evening, in our language, at evening ye shall eat flesh, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and ye shall know that I am Yahweh your God. And it came to pass that at evening the quails, which in the Septuagint are these quail mothers, the quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay round about the host. The second is found later on in Numbers chapter 11, where the children of Israel were rebellious once again, and we read, And there went forth a wind from Yahweh, and brought quails, and in the Septuagint, once again, it's that word for quail mothers, or tugometra, and it always appears in a singular for some reason, probably because, like sperma, or like in English we say fish or deer, it's a word that's used collectively in the singular. And brought quails from the sea, and let them fall by the camp, as it were a day's journey on his side, and as it were a day's journey on the other side, round about the camp, and as it were two cubits high upon the face of the earth. And the people stood up all that day, and all that night, and all the next day, and they gathered the quails, or quail mothers. He that gathered least had gathered ten homers, and they spread them all abroad for themselves round about the camp. And while the flesh was yet between their teeth, ere it was chewed, where it was chewed, the wrath of Yahweh was kindled against the people, and Yahweh smote the people with a very great plague. So here Solomon is certainly describing the event of Exodus chapter 16, and not that of Numbers chapter 11, as he attested that Yahweh God was working kindly, or perhaps dealing beneficently with his people. Now, his further description of the Ortugometra describes a hideous bird, which certainly does not seem to have been an actual quail. Verse 3 of Wisdom chapter 16. To the end that they, desiring food, might for the ugly sight of the beast sent among them, loathe even that, which they must needs desire. But these, suffering penury for a short space, might be made partakers of a strange taste. And while there is no word for beasts in the text, where this translation has the beasts sent among them, we would write only those sent upon them. But we see a reference to the ortugometra of the previous verse. For that and other differences, we will translate the verse for ourselves, repeating verse 3 from my own translation, in order that they, on the one hand desiring food, on account of the ugly sight of the things sent upon them, these quail mothers, then they would turn away from the necessity of appetite, while they, having been a little needy, also had been partakers of a strange taste. So with this we may certainly be persuaded 
that the Ortugo Metro was not a quail, but some other bird which was probably not eaten regularly, but which was observed by the ancient Greeks to have migrated along with the quail so that the Greeks called it a quail mother. And so did the translators of the Septuagint. Now, speaking of the enemies of Israel, or in this case, the Egyptians, in contrast to the children of Israel in the wilderness, Solomon writes, For it was requisite that upon them exercising tyranny should come penury, which they could not avoid, but to these it should only be showed how their enemies were tormented. And once again, for clarification, we shall translate the verse for ourselves. For it was necessary for them that while unmerciful poverty came upon those ruling as tyrants, upon the Egyptians who were tyrannizing the Israelites, on the other hand, to these alone, meaning the Israelites themselves, it was shown how their enemies had been tormented. While the love of money is indeed the root of all evil, that is associated with the love of luxury, personal comfort, covetousness, and the satiation of one's carnal desires. I should say perhaps the satisfaction of one's carnal desires. So in a parenthetical remark in chapter 3 of his epistle to the Philippians, Paul of Tarsus wrote, for many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. Here the children of Israel were sustained with manna in the desert, and they were unhappy with that. Mere sustenance was not enough for them, so they demanded meat, which in their condition certainly was a luxury, as they were basically only recently escaped slaves. So they were filled with the strange taste of a bird, which was apparently not usually eaten. And in this analogy, Solomon implies here that the strange taste should have taught them to be satisfied with the manna, while also demonstrating to them that while their enemies were punished with strange beasts, they themselves were preserved by them, even if they did not receive precisely what they had expected to eat. On account of these things, we are led to rebellion against our parents. As Esau was a profane man and a fornicator and lost his inheritance, and as the children of Israel had often rebelled against Yahweh their father, in spite of the fact that he often demonstrated his power of life and death over them all. And if we obey not our father, how can we ever expect our sons to obey us? Yahweh willing, we shall soon return to Solomon's lessons from the Exodus as we proceed with Wisdom chapter 16. Next week, I pray. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. Thank you for listening, and good night.